I believe what we talk about in this room. I believe in the truth and the integrity of God's word when it reveals to us that in this majestic, well thought out plan of almighty God, he not only set about to chase after us to make us his own, but he put in place this word over thousands of years that is so intricately woven together that it allows us to study it in context. And it thrills my soul to get to be here and to get to talk to you about at least what was going on in my brain when I chose these scriptures to go with the readings that we had this last week. So you do me honor by being here, and I thank you for that, but I'm especially thankful to the Lord that he has seen fit to put us in a place and a time where we can understand so much more of what he did than people in other days might have been able to. So this week, the reading started with Jesus and Nicodemus. And I'm remiss if I don't thank Jared Richard for teaching last week. I was uh, in the middle of court. Yes, absolutely. And, and Jared was very gracious, and he does that so quickly and so well, and I'm very thankful. So Jesus and Nicodemus. This is a story, if you heard Pastor Trammell preach about this morning, it's a, it's a marvelous central story about Scripture. I love this story, and I love what it says. And if you remember this story, It starts out with Jesus telling Nicodemus that someone needs to be born again. And as Pastor Trammell talked this morning, Nicodemus' response was, how can I climb back into my mother's womb? And the Jews in the time of Nicodemus were very concerned. They were extra careful about lineage. So I put into our reading the first, first Chronicles 3 passage which showed the lineage from King David going forward. Lineage was not something that's new in the Bible. Lineage goes back to the book of Genesis. And you'll find in uh, in, in many places in the Bible, lineage, they're the boring chapters, where so-and-so begat so-and-so, who begat so-and-so, who begat so-and-so. And while they may be useful, if you're looking for names for your Children about to be born. You know, you can name your children the phrase that in Hebrew means he caused me many woes and troubles. Or the child who kicked extra hard in the womb. Or any number of names that they put together. But outside of that, many people sit there and say, why are these names in the Bible? Why, if God's word is so... Precious, did he spend so many pages and verses with things that frankly don't seem to make any difference to us at all? And I would suggest to you that they do make a difference. Because if nothing else, and there are other things, but if nothing else, they show the great concern the Jews had for your family tree. Why did the Jews care so much about family trees? Because biblically, there was a promise that went forth. First to to Eve and the seed of Eve, uh, the offspring of Eve, but ultimately to Abraham. 
that through his lineage, all the nations would be blessed. And the, the scripture continues to define that promise and define that promise. And it defines it through the children of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, goes all the way through the, the, the tribe of Judah, goes to David, goes to Solomon. And you see this worked out in such a way that you get to the New Testament and you see Jesus meets the prophetic word. He is the offspring that, that, that has carefully been about. Now, in the process of that careful uh, attentiveness to Scripture, I mean to lineage, and, and let me be clear, the temple kept records of lineage. I mean, this was not something where it was just fly-by-night fancy. The Jews were very careful about this. And as a result, you've got someone like Nicodemus who is so focused in on biology and family tree and lineage that he does not understand where Jesus is coming from. He's got the blinders on so that he can't see anything beyond the physical. So when you read the story, and in the story you read the language, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, ruler of the Jews. He comes to Jesus by night and says, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher from God. No one else could do these signs. Jesus says, truly I say to you, unless one is born anew or born from above, he can't see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus says, "Uh, I don't see how somebody's going to get born twice. His focus is on the physical aspects of this. And that's all he saw. And so what Jesus does is Jesus says, Hey, you're a teacher of the Jews. You ought to know better than to simply be looking at the physical. You ought to know about Ezekiel 36. Now, um, I I got a phone call last night from Pastor Trammell who said, would you, if I call you up on stage tomorrow morning, hence the tie, if I call you up on stage tomorrow morning, would you take a couple of minutes and tell uh, people about what it meant to be a Pharisee? And you can take that two ways. Either A, <laughs> thank you, Pastor, or B, maybe he knows something about being a Pharisee. <laughs> so, um, uh, my, my thought was, how do I call it down? And then I thought to two to three to four minutes or whatever he said I could have, four or five minutes. And, and I thought, well, I can call it down for there, but in here I can say whatever I want. So let me add to what I didn't really feel like I had time to say this morning about the Pharisees. Um, there were four religious groups of Jews at the time. And among these four religious groups, we know about this because Josephus, the Jewish historian writing in around 90 AD, wrote this. The four groups, there were the Essenes. They were probably that community out in Qumran that that, uh, went off by themselves. There were the Zealots. They were the ones who were fighting, wanting uh, to reestablish a physical kingdom of Israel. There were the Sadducees. They were the politicos. They were the ones in tight with the Romans. They were the ruling uh, uh, power structure. And there were the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the ones that had popular support, who cared about how they lived and were dedicated and were teachers of the law. 
Now, out of those two major camps, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Sadducees only believed in the law of Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament. That's why the Sadducees didn't believe in a resurrection. The Sadducees had a very limited view of things. The Pharisees believed in all of the Old Testament. So for Jesus to expect Nicodemus to know about what's in the Old Testament is logical. Because he was a, Nicodemus was a Pharisee. They embraced the whole Old Testament. It's no coincidence that God called Paul. And before God called Paul, God through his providence placed Paul to be a Pharisee. To study as a Pharisee. So Paul studied the whole of Old Testament scripture. If Paul had been reared a Sadducee, he'd have been great in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, but pretty poor after that. But instead, we see Paul echoing throughout the Old Testament because he was a Pharisee. He studied it. So it's fair for Jesus to say things to Nicodemus. It's fair for Nicodemus to be expected to know the prophecy of Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 36... Ezekiel's talking about what it's going to be like when Israel is restored. And particularly if we look at verses 25 to 27 of chapter 36, it gives you a good sense of this. We can start it back with maybe verse 22. God says to to Ezekiel to say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, it's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act. I'm not doing this, Israel, because you deserve it. I'm not going to do this because of who you are. I'm acting because of my holy name. Which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. I'm acting out of the... It's not, I'm not doing this because you're good enough. In fact, you've been so sorry, I've got to do this to cover up how sorry you've been. That's the Lubbock translation. (laughs) I will vindicate the holiness of my name, which you've been running into the dirt among the nations. And then the nations will know I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I'll take you from the nations. I'll gather you from the countries. I'll bring you into your own land. And look at this. I will sprinkle clean water on you. Jesus says you've got to be born again of water and of spirit. That was a prophetic word. I will sprinkle clean water on you. You will be clean from all your uncleanness. From your idols I will cleanse you. And I will put a new heart and a new spirit within you. Do you see Jesus in telling John or in telling Nicodemus, you've got to be born again of water and of spirit? He's echoing Ezekiel 36. I'll put a new spirit. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh. I'll give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Jesus is telling Nicodemus, you're a teacher of the Jews and you don't know this? Look beyond the physical, boy. 
God told Ezekiel in Ezekiel 36 to tell you about this, that you've got to be born from above. You've got to have God sprinkling you clean. You've got to have God putting a new spirit within you. That's what the context is. If we go back then to the PowerPoint. So Nicodemus sees only the physical. Jesus is saying, hey, buddy. Remember Ezekiel 36? This was prophetic. And then Jesus goes a step further and says, and as a practical matter, it's not like Nicodemus. You understand all this physical stuff anyway. Look, after all, at these passages. Well, let me, let me keep it in the Nicodemus vein for a moment. So, keep you on the Nicodemus story. So, Nicodemus says, how can you be born again? How do you enter a womb? Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you're born of water and the Spirit, you can't enter the kingdom of God. You will never be able to do it because you're good enough. You take that passage out of Ezekiel that Jesus is referencing and expand it so that you get it within the context of the prophecy in Ezekiel. Remember, God started out chapter 36 telling Ezekiel, hey, I'm not saving the people because the people deserve it. The people have been running my name into the dirt. I got to save the people because of my name to show that I'm not the sorry God they Tell everybody I am and treat me like I am. God saves us. God reaches down. You're born again, not because you're worthy, but because God said God's going to bring this redemption to his people and he will bring his people home. And God will not fail. That's the thrust. Now he's, I mean, this is whirring in Nicodemus's head. Then Jesus takes it a step further and says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. Biology is biology is biology. But that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And don't marvel when I say to you that you've got to be born from above. We've got to be real careful. The translation born again is a marvelous translation because it's true. But if we go straight there and don't read the footnote, we don't realize that the best translation of this is to be born from above. The second birth is not a biological birth. It is be, you're born again when you are born from above. And so if we understand that, when Jesus says, don't marvel that I say you got to be born from above, you got to be born again, the wind, it blows where it wishes you hear it sound, but... You don't know where it comes from. You don't know where it goes. And that's the way it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. Nicodemus is stunned. He's saying, I just don't get this. And Jesus is saying, Nick, you need to wise up spiritually. Look, for example, at Proverbs 30, verse 4. By the way, someone, as an aside, someone said, how are you on getting all of the scriptures put in there? Well, I'm almost to proofreading. I've got six Proverbs I've still got to figure out where to put. And after, not chapters, just individual Proverbs. And after I figure out where to put those, then we've got to proofread this and see how many things I've got you reading twice and how many things I left out. But we had this proverb in there because Jesus is referencing it. 
See, Jesus says in John 3 to Nicodemus, by the way, isn't it amazing how Scripture is just so interrelated and how there are references to the Old Testament that frankly we just don't get because we don't spend enough time in the Old Testament. And, and that's not a bad thing. Time is limited and there's only so much time you've got. And, and, you know, given a choice between reading John 3 and the story of Nicodemus or spending my life pouring over Ezekiel 36, I'll go for John 3. But when we do get to pull, take the time to pull this together, it's really fun. So Jesus says, Nicodemus says to Jesus, how can these things be? Jesus says, you're the teacher of Israel and you don't understand? See, we're, we're speaking of what we know. We bear witness to what we've seen, but you didn't receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you don't believe, how are you going to believe if I tell you spirit, heavenly things? Born from above in this context. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. There's a gentleman in our class who is, uh, I don't know if he's in our class, I think he comes occasionally, may even be here this morning, but he and I have been having an ongoing dialogue over the issue of reincarnation. And I, this young man has uh, reads the has been reading some readings from a, a fella in the a Kentucky guy out of the 1800s who's big on, was big, he's dead now, um, on reincarnation. Uh, I still think he's dead now. Um, but this, uh, uh, out of this writings, this gentleman uh, uh, sent me an email and said, hey, John talks about reincarnation and used this verse, 13. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven and left out the last couple of words, the son of man. So it looked like a reincarnation verse. No one's ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven. So it's like this cyclical thing. And I pointed out, no, you've got to take the whole verse. The Son of Man. This is a reference to Jesus. No one else other than Jesus truly understood these heavenly things because Jesus was in heaven before he descended to earth. And Jesus says, you speak of what you know. So do I. And I happen to know these things. And he's referencing back also to Proverbs 30 verse 4 because it fits in in a way where Nicodemus should have understood it. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment, established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is his son's name? Surely you know. Who is it? God. And who's his son? Jesus. So, I mean, Jesus is really pounding this with Nicodemus. He's just taking these passages out of the Old Testament right and left. Look at uh, uh, Proverbs 20, verse 12. And I'm going to run out of time, so we can't go through all of the passages this morning. But that's okay. Proverbs 20, verse 12. The hearing eye, ear, <laughs> sorry, and the seeing eye, Yahweh, has made them both. 
you see what you see, you hear what you hear, but you are always going to be limited, whereas the one who made your eyes and the one who made your ears is not. And that's how Jesus is trying to get Nicodemus to wise up. If we had time, we would look at Psalm 139. Well, it's just one of my favorite psalms. I was really torn about where do I put Psalm 139? Look at this psalm. This is just... And Dale Hearn, I'm sorry. I know you think I just spend too much time in class reading from the Bible to everybody. But this is good. I'll get an email from him today. And I love Dale Hearn. And he is one of my biggest supporters and a huge help to me. So I just tease you. Oh, Lord, you've searched me. You've known me. You know when I sit down. You know when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path, my lying down. You're acquainted with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before you lay your hand on me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? Where will I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, God's there. If I go to Sheol, the after darkness place. You don't build your theology, by the way, off of the idea of the psalmist because he was limited in his understanding in his time and place. But it's true. You go to the afterlife. God is there. If I take the wings of the morning and I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, if I go as far as the east, as far as for the west, God's everywhere. And then he goes further and he says, and you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them the days that were formed me before any of them came to be. That's the God we've got. That's the God Jesus is pointing Nicodemus to. Nicodemus, you don't understand the workings of God. You don't understand the Spirit of God. You don't need to question how God does it. You need to fall on your knees and let God do it. And don't be stunned by what I'm teaching because it's been in your Bible all the time. So that is, if we go back to the PowerPoint, that is the the story there. So then we have Jesus proceeding forward in John 3. And Jesus says to Nicodemus, As Moses was lifted up, the serpent in the wilderness. Well, we'll come back to that in a minute. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in his son would not perish but have eternal life. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world. Why? It was already condemned. Jesus didn't... Someone said to me one time, in fact, it might have been you, Tim. Someone said to me, man, Jesus just made it harder. Before I couldn't kill, now I'm not supposed to hate. Before I couldn't commit adultery, now I'm not supposed to lust. Why did he just come make it harder? It's hard enough before him. Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world. The world's already condemned. The wrath of God already exists against all unholiness and unrighteousness. 
loves the sinner, hates the sin. So I took a PowerPoint slide for the wrath of God. It's the painting of Michelangelo in the Sistine Chapel. I don't like painting God as a human. God the Father is a human. Just at this point in my life, it, it, I, I feel like we need to get we, we don't need to, to, we need to understand God is so much more than what we envisage as a human. But having said that, if you look closely, you see God's wrath in his face in this painting. Wrath at sin that mars, destroys the image of God in man and woman. And it's a, it's a profound thing, the idea of the wrath of God. It's not something that would have been new to Nicodemus. Nicodemus had read Jeremiah. He knew in Jeremiah 5 that Jeremiah was saying, because of the sinfulness of Judah, God's sending his wrath down in the form of Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. God's taking a pagan nation to judge Israel. His wrath will come down upon the sin of Israel. Look, one of the reasons, as I was alluding to this morning in in main service, one of the reasons the Pharisees were famous is because it was the Pharisees that fought so hard in the Maccabean Revolution and the Hasmonean dynasty that came after that, they, the, the, the Pharisees were the, the Hasidim. They were the, the, the devout ones that fought so hard saying, have we never learned the lesson from the past? That if we don't follow the law, if we don't honor God, if we don't live holy and righteous, He will destroy us. It was the Pharisees that were willing to put their lives on the line so that the people of Israel would follow the law. This should not be a new concept to Nicodemus. He knew about Babylon. He knew his Isaiah 30 passage 200 years earlier where Isaiah prophesied Assyria is going to come down in judgment of God on the northern tribes, the northern kingdom of Israel. He knew these prophetic words, but he also knew the promises of God about a Messiah who would change the dynamic. And that's Isaiah 52. And so we read Isaiah 52 together. It's a, it's a, uh, a marvelous, marvelous passage. Isaiah 52, awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments. Whoops, I'm sorry. There it is. Awake, awake. Speaking of awake. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem. For there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust. There's going to be a time where the, peop- where the foreign powers aren't your judge anymore. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing and you shall be redeemed without money. Thus says the Lord God, my people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there. The Assyrians oppressed them for nothing. 
Therefore, what have I here, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing, declares the Lord? All day my name's despised. Therefore, my people shall know my name. In that day they shall know it is I who speak. Here am I. Look at verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Who is that? When does that time come? Do you see in this verse, can anybody shout out for me? Who quotes this or uses this in the New Testament? Paul. Where? Close. Ephesians. I didn't put it in the reading because I had another place to put it. But it was really, I mean, this is one of those things where I really toyed with putting it in the reading. Ephesians 5 verse 10. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you'll be able to stand. What is the armor? Stand having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. What does gospel mean, literally? Good news of peace. Put it on your feet. Isaiah 52. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet who bring good news and publish peace. See, that's what Paul's referencing. This is Jesus. This is the life in Jesus. That's why we have at the end of this chapter, verse 13, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. What does Jesus tell Nicodemus? Lift it up. He'll be exalted. As many of you, as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So he shall sprinkle many nations, wash them, born of water. Kings will shut their mouth because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. That which they've not heard, they understand. The arm of the Lord is revealed in Jesus. So it's a magnificent story. The wrath of God is put down there. And Jesus is saying to, 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 to Nicodemus, you only escape the wrath of God if you put your faith in Jesus, the one who is lifted up and says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, as Isaiah prophesied. We did throw in the story out of Numbers 21 of, of the serpent being lifted up to heal the people. And uh, uh, that's being referenced there as well. Now, Paul gives a synopsis of this entire story in Romans 5. Which is why we put Romans 5 into the reading at this point in time. Again, one of those passages that could have gone in so many different places. There was just so many different ways to do this. But look briefly at Romans 5. I won't read the whole thing, Dale. 
Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that John story of Nicodemus in one verse? In Nicodemus, Jesus says that you have to believe. Believe is the same word as faith. Faith is just that same word in the Greek in its noun form. So you can just write the word believe. Have belief is what that means. Have believed. Therefore, since we've been justified by the fact we've believed, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the story of Nicodemus. Through Jesus, we've also obtained access by faith, by belief, into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice, Paul says, even in our sufferings. And he walks through all of this walks through Jesus dying for the un, for the sinners, dying for the unrighteous, and then points out the following. Verse 12. Let's see if I can get it up here. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because everybody's sinning, Sin was indeed in the world even before the law was given. It's just they didn't know it, maybe, because they didn't have the law. Yet, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those sinning, those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. It goes on and on and on. Verse 18, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. And that's the beauty of the eternal life we have in Jesus. So Paul gives us a nice synopsis of it, if we go back to the PowerPoint, and we've got that whole Nicodemus story. Now we're on the horns of a dilemma. Hebrews 2 puts it this way. Hebrews 2, 1 through 4, asks this question. says, therefore, we need to pay closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away. For the, since the message declared by angels, that's the Old Testament law. Angels means messengers. Since the message declared by the messengers proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, and I inserted in there some Old Testament laws for you to read to see how tough they were and how particular they were. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord. And it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts distributed. It was attested first by the Lord. This is exactly what Jesus did with Nicodemus. Jesus attested to the truth that there is a salvation from the wrath of God that rightly comes upon all sinners 
by looking to the one that he lifted up. This is an interweaving of scripture that's so tight and it's such a central message and it gives us the measuring rod to understand the Bible by. I mean, you can read those passages in Deuteronomy 23 through 25 that I gave you. If we go to the PowerPoint, please. You can read those passages in Deuteronomy 23 through 25. You can read all of the law. You're not going to do it. You couldn't if you tried. And that's even for the picky little things. How on earth are you going to love the Lord your God with all of your heart? Anybody done that? Anybody ever loved the Lord your God with all of your heart just for a day? For an hour? For a moment? It's just not possible for us fallen humans. So we sure ought to pay attention and not neglect such a great salvation that Jesus acknowledged first. Paul put it this way in Romans 1, 16 and 17 that we read. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, of the good news, of the fact that Jesus Christ died to forgive me of my sins and to give me a way of righteousness that's not based on how good I am or how right I am or even that I want it bad enough. It's based entirely on the holiness of his name. I got an email from a friend who said, I'm writing a little missive for Dr. Harvey Floyd, who had been my Greek professor in in undergraduate school. And he said, do you have any Dr. Harvey Floyd stories to share? And I shared this one, and it's one I've probably shared with, with you so many times you know it. Listen to it again, because I love it, and I want to hear it again, and I want to say it again. I was in class one day, and Dr. Floyd had basically finished teaching. And he said, Do, are there any questions? And one student raised his hand and said, Dr. Floyd, I've never heard the, the story. Would you tell us about the day you got saved? Dr. Floyd looked, and he said, oh, I would love to. I would absolutely love to the day I got saved. Well, it was almost 2,000 years ago. And he proceeded to tell the gospel. It's a miraculous story. And it doesn't shame Paul that Paul, I mean, that's a Pharisee. Paul was a Pharisee. A Pharisee writing Romans 1, 16 and 17. When Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, when I was a kid, I used to think that meant Paul would have taken his Bible to school without getting embarrassed. That's not what Paul means. I mean, that might be an implication of it, but that's not what Paul means. Paul means it does not shame me, even though I'm a Pharisee and a man who's tried to live as righteous and holy a life as is humanly possible. It does not shame me to say that I need Jesus Christ's blood for my righteousness. It does not shame me. And then he says, for, because, it is the power of God to save everyone. It's the only way anyone's getting saved. So does it shame me 
I can see some people coming up to Paul and saying, yeah, bless your heart, you need Jesus, but I don't. I'm doing pretty good. Paul's, no, we all need him. Doesn't shame me at all. Now, with that, that's our Jesus in Nicodemus. Next, we look, there's an insertion here of some humility. And I don't have time to cover it much, but I can't just zip on by. What do we have, like eight minutes, nine minutes? Um, and I, um, okay, so look, John gives us a great little dose of humility here in verses 22. This is John the Baptist, a little insertion here, where Jesus and his disciples go into the GD and uh, countryside, they're baptizing, John's baptizing, a discussion comes up, and and John points to Jesus and says, he needs to become greater while I'm going to become lesser. That's the bridegroom. That's who you need to be following. And that humility of someone who says, He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who comes from heaven is above all. He is the one that God has sent. What a great lesson in humility. I pulled out some psalms in humility, and I pulled out Psalm 147, which compares humility and puts it into framework for the fear of the Lord. Because what humility is is a recognition that God is... True humility is a recognition that uh, of God's greatness to such a degree that... Look, look, I'm, I'm in this trial, right? Let me change, do it this way. I'm in this trial. And, and in this trial, we're living and breathing by numbers. Okay? Now, I want to show you something on this chart here. Numbers are marvelous ways to tell lies. Okay? This is a scale. It's a scale from one, no, from zero to two. So that's two, and that's one. Okay? You with me? Now, I happen to know a guy who's really good. This is going to be a scale of righteousness. I happen to know a fella who's about the most righteous guy you've ever met in your life. He's phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. Scale of zero to two. If if I'm a point one five, that'll be or I mean a point, yeah, Mark, I'm a point two. I'm like like a point two. Okay? That's Mark Lanier. Uh, you guys, y'all are a little better than I am. We're going to give y'all a point four. Some of you. <laughs> but I got to tell you, this guy, he's a 1.75, man. He is so stinking good. I just call him, him. Now, you see that, and it's pretty impressive. That dude's got a lot to be proud about. If this is the chart you're looking at. But if you want to add God to the chart, 
God is five gajillion. Okay? Now, I'm a molecule such that you can't really see me at this point on this chart. And I love you guys to death. But on this chart, y'all are molecules too. Because the difference between a point two and a point four when you're comparing it to five gajillion is nothing. And as for our really righteous and holy friend, the most holy, righteous, marvelous person I've ever met in my entire life. He is so marvelously righteous that I've made him up in my mind because he doesn't really exist. That's why I call him him. He's a molecule. Because compared to five gajillion, a point or 1.75 is nothing. Humility is understanding that God is more than a five gajillion. And at that point, there's no difference between any of us. Except we all need God. There's no reason for any of us. I mean, John the Baptist, when he's got the five gajillion. Did it hurt his ego to be nothing compared to the five gajillion? The last, no, the first time I've ever read of anybody trying to make themselves like God, it was one of my relatives. Her name was Eve. She's like my great-great-grandmother to the five billionth degree. And our family has suffered ever since. I don't want to be like God. I hold him in awe and fear, and I'm fine with that. So we went through a bunch of passages that talk about the importance of humility. And then John, at the end of John 3, kind of sums things up. And he talks about the difference between having blinders. And he talks about the wrath of God and says, you know, if you don't get born again, if you don't accept Jesus on you, the wrath of God remains. But you do all of that out of humility, recognizing the greatness of who God is and the, the, the magnificent opportunity that we have. So Dale... Here are the points for home. He's also been telling me, oh, man, on the humility, oh, that, that summation stuff, that was a great passage in Jeremiah 13. Read it if you didn't have time. Points for home. I want glasses, not blinders. I don't want to miss what God's doing because I'm just focused on my day, my problems, my life. The fact that I have to get Dr. Kessler ready to testify starting at 4 o'clock today. I don't want to live my life with blinders on to what God is doing. I want glasses on so that I can see everywhere his hand is at work. Both in my day, in my problems, in my life, in my family, in my job, in my fellowship, in my children, in their future in what the world has going on, in our government, in current affairs. I want to see the hand of God in eternity. Because in it, I am going to hold God in awe. And hopefully, if there's any integrity at all, in me, and if that vision is there, I will walk humbly with my God 
looking for the ways he will use me in his magnificent kingdom for which all I can do is with great humility say, thank you, thank you, thank you, Lord. Would you join me in prayer? Father, the voice of the world shouts at us so loud to distract us and to get our attention. We thank you for moments like these when we can refocus on you, on the things that really count. Lord, would you please bless everyone hearing your word this morning? Make your face shine upon them. Be gracious to them. Give them your peace. Give them your joy. The freshness of your spirit as they walk the life that you've enabled by the blood of your son through whom we pray. Amen.